A Pacific gull is winging its way down the wide course of the Derwent River. It dips its dark-tipped wings past a curve of headland and slides west into the Dondrecasto Channel. There, behold, at the mouth of the channel is an enormous suspension bridge, as high as the Brooklyn Bridge and 227 metres longer. For the last 100 years and more, the only access to Bruny Island has been by boat or the two vehicle ferries running morning to night across the channel. Now, after four years under construction, the bridge is three months short of completion. Cables tension the entire structure, curtaining the sky. Two roadways, reaching from shore to shore, come to an abrupt gap over a calm indigo sea. At the near shore where the bridge begins is a hamlet called Tinderbox. It is here on the beach that the Pacific Gull lands. The night and the tide are at ebb. Dawn is a promise on the horizon. There are no lights on in the homes and no traffic on the road. The far shore, Bruni, is one of the largest and most popular islands off the Tasmanian coastline. It is almost 100 kilometres in length, half as big again as Martha's Vineyard, but without the mansions, wealth or famous seasonal occupants. Bruni is a long stretch of farmlands, eucalyptus forests, green and gold hills and long white beaches. For those who come to holiday, it's a place for fishing, swimming and simply sitting on your deck with a beer or a glass of wine and thinking about how good life is. Tasmanians do quite a bit of that, given the chance. Permanent residents on Bruni number just a few hundred. Several thousand shack owners swell the island population through summer and school holidays, and more than 250,000 tourists visit year-round, staying in the hotels, cottages, caravan parks and national parks, filling the restaurants, buying local chocolate, local cheese, local whiskey, gin and vodka, local salmon, oysters and local wine. If Tasmania is the new France for global gourmets, Bruni is the new Côte d'Azur. Tourists fill cruise boats and bus tours, car parks and craft stores. It is for the tourists, the Tasmanian government says, that the Great Bridge is being built. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Award-winning novelist Heather Rose is a sixth-generation Tasmanian and eight-time novelist. Her 2017 book, The Museum of Modern Love, won the Stella Prize, the Christina Stead Prize and the Margaret Scott Prize. Heather's latest book, Bruni, is quite unlike anything she has written before, a searing, genre-defying, 400-page political thriller. It is a mystery, a satire, a romance, a family saga, and above all, a love letter to Australia's island state. Heather, welcome. Thank you, Emma. It's lovely to be here with you. Uh, You grew up in Hobart during the 60s and 70s. What are some of your best memories? 
Oh, look, being barefoot for months on end <laughs> and having so much sunburn that we used to peel layers off our noses and cheeks and at night, lying in bed with my brothers and sister, and we'd, we'd, <laughs> we'd oh count how many layers we were pulling off our faces. Uh, we had a shack down on the Tasman Peninsula, so there were an enormous amount of days spent doing nothing but swimming and kayaking and sailing and just lazing about on the beach it was an extraordinary childhood it it was the sort of freedom that I would want all children to have and it's magically beautiful in Tasmania so that was another part of life too regardless of the season there were always just beautiful beautiful things to do as simple as walking on a beach at sunrise or sunset and it's so breathtakingly beautiful gorgeous bird life, magnificent forests and of course fishing with my grandfather. That was a really big part of my childhood, going out fishing and with hand lines and just sitting in the boat, chatting away. And he was the one who really taught me to look at the landscape and to see the beauty in it. And he was also a huge influence on me in helping me understand that I was part of a continuum of people. Uh, you know, he'd point out the middens and the evidence of the Aboriginal people that had been so severely displaced. And, yeah, it was a it was a magical childhood for a writer because there was so much time to sort of observe quite eccentric people. Uh, my parents were pretty eccentric in their own way. Uh, my mother was a very vibrant, is a very vibrant woman and very colourful. We had lots of great neighbours. We lived in a community where you knew everyone. You were always welcome in everyone's house. All of us children sort of played as this sort of big tribe and <laughs> we'd, we'd sort of uh, scout everyone's house for who was having the best dinner that <laughs> night and see if we could get an invitation. <laughs> And was that you because you guys were eating fresh fish? Uh, it was sometimes us because my mum was an awesome cook. Mm. But it was sometimes my best friend because his mum cooked entirely different things, which was fantastic. Sometimes it was the people over to the right. Sometimes it was my girlfriend up the hill. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a good community of interesting cooks. Nice. <laughs> well, speaking of good food, um, Bruni itself, let's talk Bruni. It's renowned, as you read in that extract at the beginning, it's renowned for its... Um, gourmet delights mm. and it's front page of every Tasmanian brochure uh, along with a glass of white and some glistening oysters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially the glistening oysters. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a little bit about your own connection to the island? Mm. So when I was a child my father had a block of land on Bruni and it was on uh, the side of the road that wasn't on the beach so the road went through and there were there were blocks on the beach side and then there was a block on the other side of the road that was my dad's and there were a few houses but it was a very very under it is a very underpopulated island and it was even more so 50 years ago and it was beautiful to go down there we used to camp and then we would wade that bay that particular bay is very very shallow and I used to hire one of those houses on the other side of the road when my children were small and we you know did many 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 days and weeks of wading that bay you know tiny little fish going fishing in a little dinghy out there uh, playing on the rocks and also Bruni has been a part of my writing life. So not only in my childhood as being one of the coldest places you can mm -hmm. swim, let me say. Mm, uh, Adventure Bay is really one of the coldest places you can swim in Tasmania. And so interestingly, Bruni became part of my writing life 
because it's a really lovely place to go and stay and it's very remote and you used to not get any mobile coverage. So as soon as you headed off on the ferry, within about sort of 10 metres of the ferry leaving the shore, your signal used to go out. And I used to think this was heaven on a stick as a writer. And I had um, houses given to me to finish projects in and people have been incredibly generous in giving me writing retreat places so you know they might have a shack that they're not using or they're going overseas and they just need a house sitter so I actually finished the river wife down there which was a perfect uh, sort of way to do it because the characters also move from up in that mountainous highlands uh, down to the to the ocean and then I worked on my children's series on Bruni and then I also uh, finished the Museum of Modern Love on Bruni and that same house that I finished the Museum of Modern Love in has a view right over the Doncicaster Channel and is basically the house that Astrid lives in in Bruni and so I also wrote early drafts of Bruni on Bruni so it's had this I mean it's been a it's a very precious place to me Bruni it's so remote it's it's so unpopulated and it seems to be almost a symbol of how the world used to be. Speaking of how the world used to be, the novel explores these tensions between the old and the traditional and, and the new and the pressures of, um, of tourism, for example, as you read in the extract, all of the thousands of people flocking to Bruni mm. each year. Um, and at the centre of all of those tensions is the bridge, the construction of a $2 billion bridge. How did that idea come to you? Look, that was a, a really f- funny moment. Uh, you know, I was walking the beach that I live on and from the far end of that, you look straight down at North Bruni and you can see the point of Tinderbox as well. So you can see the opening of the Don Tricasto. And it was probably a trick of the light or just my imagination or a combination of both, but I looked down the channel that day And it was as if I could see this huge bridge, huge bridge. And I thought, what's that doing there? What would have happened if there was a bridge? How would people feel about a bridge? Mm." And it got me thinking. And the very next thing that happened was I saw this character turn up at Hobart Airport. And this is what it's like being a writer. So (laughs) these things happen in my mind. And... Uh, I saw this woman and she's very, very tall and obviously a world traveller. She has that kind of luggage and that kind of clothing. And she's met by a a very petite woman who's clearly well known. And that happens at Hobart Airport all the time that when you're at the baggage carousel, you can tell if someone is well known because everyone's sort of either looking at them or trying not to look at them. (laughs) Uh, But we are a very small community. And so she, they walk out of the airport together and then in my mind I follow them home And then the next thing I get is this scene where they're at a dinner table together with their family. And look, then I was away. I actually thought I was going to write another novel, but it took over, Bruni. It took over in a massive way. Mm. It was was relentless. You know, Museum of Modern Love took me 11 years. I had the most patient kind of muse, if I had a muse at all, because, of course, there's a muse in the Museum of Modern Love and (laughs) it... it, um, it made me think about whether there were muses that visited and I thought if there is one for Bruni, it's incredibly patient. <laughs> and then this one with uh, with museum, yeah, and then this one with Bruni felt like a sort of ancient grandmother with a stick just beating me on the back going, <laughs> write harder, write faster. 
and it came in a ferocious kind of download over you know two two and a half years the commons are a family riddled with a little more conflict than most astrid siblings are each heading up two of the major political parties in Tasmania. So I wonder if you could introduce them yeah. to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, look, it's it's a satire, this novel, let me say, as well as a thriller and a love story and all of those things. And it really started as a satire. So the uh, John Coleman, JC, is the Premier of Tasmania. His sister, Maxine, his older sister, Maxine, is the leader of the opposition. So she's the leader of the Labor Party. And uh, Astrid, who is the is the very tall sister who arrives from New York, is uh, JC's twin sister, and she's an international conflict resolution specialist. And JC has asked her to come home to settle down the Tasmanians because they are very upset about this large bridge that is being built between Tinderbox and Bruni. There's been a lot of activism over the four years of infrastructure development. And people feel very suspicious of why this enormous bridge, this six-lane bridge, bigger than the bridge that joins, you know, the eastern shore of Hobart to the main body of Hobart, so bigger than any other bridge in Tasmania, for supposedly a population of 600 people and 250,000 tourists a year, but nevertheless a massive, spectacular, international scale uh, and certainly internationally designed bridge. And of course, when we first meet the Colmans and Astrid comes home, it's because the bridge has been blown up. So she's here to settle down the Tasmanians to try and ensure that everyone feels safe again because JC and Maxine are both four months out from an election. Mm. And of course, all these loyalties are going on in the family where JC is Astrid's twin brother and they are very close but she's also very close to her sister Maxine and so there are there's there's very complex loyalties in the family their father has uh, dementia their mother has cancer it's there's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated <laughs> uh, and Astrid as you said is a professional conflict resolution specialist mm. um, but I wonder if you know, many of us have sort of been in that situation of the mediator, especially at, um, uh, you know, family gatherings, as you said. So I wonder, do you have any advice to people, especially in today's climate, mm. of how to navigate those sort of thorny mm. discussions? Look, I think we have to be up for bigger conversations. And I think we have to be up for conversations with people who we deeply disagree with. And... I think we have to be up for kind conversations with those people. While ever we see people as other, and because you have a different perspective, I could never like you, I could never respect you, that is getting us into a very uh, dangerous situation globally. And until we're willing to really listen to the perspective of people with different points of view and try to understand them and try to connect with them because I'm yet to meet anyone and I've travelled widely and I've talked to a lot of different people in my life, I'm yet to meet anyone that even though on the surface we might fundamentally disagree about some very important things, there's not a place where we connect as human beings and have something in common. And once we get to that point, it's always easier to hear them and to see them for being another human being with simply another perspective. 
And sometimes there's an opportunity there in that place for us to impart information that either we had never heard or that they had never heard that helps them to gain a bigger perspective on an issue. And it's a, it's a challenge. It's not easy to, to step into those conversations. But if we're not willing to have them, then we are always going to live with a sense that the other is dangerous, it's, um, it's unlikable, it's not something we would ever support. And there we get extremism. That's the start of extremism. Right, and that is true now more than ever um, and definitely true in your book because in your book you've envisioned this new world order almost, <laughs> this uh, terrifying dystopia really where beyond the shores of Tasmania and beyond the Colmans and their conflicts, a right-wing US president has withdrawn America from the Middle East and the UN. The Islamic State has seized control of ocean thoroughfares. China is Australia's newest ally. <laughs> it's ambitious, to say the least, but it's also eerily familiar and eerily plausible. And in fact, in light of recent political developments, Bruni's proving a little more prophetic by the day. Should we be worried? Mm, that has been startling for me. You know, like that sense of having to write the book fast and and really uh, allow it to be its own thing, to not question it, to just write it. And then watching since what's been happening in the media and what's been happening on the global scale with leadership and leadership changes and, uh, you know, territory disputes and all of that has been startling for me and it's as if Bruni is becoming less and less a satire and more and more what's so day by day and here in Australia you know recent political developments wow I, I, I did not see that coming I really thought I was being extreme you know I, mm. I thought I was writing a satire that was quite outrageous in its own way that that would never happen but as you say it feels like it's getting closer and closer uh, well I've had a full disclosure to our listeners Heather and I've spoken before you can catch <laughs> our interview in the latest issue of the good reading magazine um, but when I spoke to you last you said that Bruni was the book that you've had most fun writing why is that I had to think about that a lot because at first I thought it was just literally that the Colmans were so much fun and mm. they are, I mean, you know, and Astrid herself is so outrageous and I was a bit shocked by that and I'd literally find myself writing what came down from Astrid into my mind and, you know, what she'd said and what she was thinking about because there's quite a lot of inner dialogue from Astrid and I'd be so shocked and I'd think, oh, I can't write that and then I'd think, oh, but... Astrid said it so I can't really argue if there's one thing you learn after eight novels is not to argue with your characters mm -hmm. and it was fun more than anything Emma though because this is the first novel I ever got to write full-time this is my eighth novel I wrote seven all around working running a family business uh, sitting on boards having three children with many complicated sporting schedules when my, my daughter plays hockey and would play for three teams a season uh, you know I'd literally spend a whole day of my week over the course of the week nine hours running back and forth to the hockey center uh, my boys rode so we had many many early mornings all of those novels were written around 
work, so I would start work at nine o'clock at night on my novels. Uh, sometimes I'd work till two or three in the morning. I was crazy. Sometimes I'd get up early and I'd write early. I would fit it in around weekends. Every now and again, I'd have the great joy of going to Varuna in the Blue Mountains, the sanctuary for writers like me who have family and just can't escape. Uh, I'd go there for a week or two, or and once I went for three weeks, which was awesome. And during those escapes, I would just work 18, 20 hours a day because it was so precious this time. And I'd work on drafts and everything got written around the edge of family and yeah. my children were incredibly supportive you know they they used to make me notes for my door saying mommy's writing don't disturb her <laughs> and and they've always been my my greatest fans but the the joy of being because the australia council gave me a grant for mm. brainy so they gave me a grant to write the first draft then the prizes happened for the museum of modern love and that allowed me to have these last two and a half, three years of being able to write this book full time every day. And I'd get up every morning and I'd write. And then sometimes I'd go back to work at night and write. And then I'd work all through the weekends. And I felt this enormous compulsion because the Australia Council Grant um, really gave me a lot of reassurance that I was onto something good. There was a feeling of confidence in the fact that the Museum of Modern Love had been so beautifully received unexpectedly, completely unexpectedly. And there was a sense that I could be a real writer now and I've waited my whole life for that. Isn't that funny that you've spent 40 years as a writer punching out amazing stories and only now, once you can write full-time, do you consider yourself a real writer? <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels like that because to be able to dedicate myself, I think this is the... I don't think I'd have been able to write this book if I hadn't been able to write full-time because there's a pace, as you know, there's a lot of content in this book, but there's a pace about it that makes it into a thriller, which I did not know, let me say, <laughs> when I was writing it. I just knew that it needed enough pace to keep the reader moving forward, even though there's a lot of content. So I've been delighted that people think of it as a thriller, but I didn't think of it as that at all when I was writing it. Uh, it's been a privilege. I can't thank the Australia Council enough for supporting this book. And, uh, you know, I, I had applied over 23 years. I'd applied 10 times before mm. I got that grant. And I have just got a grant from them for my next novel too. Yes. So two in 25 years. Oh, I'm very happy. <laughs> oh, I think it's interesting, actually, that you say that the success of the Museum of Modern Love gave you confidence to mm. continue and to really sink your teeth into Bruni. Um, but, you know, many people talk about success can be a blessing and a burden. Mm. Did you feel any of that? It's a big, I don't know, shadow to crawl out from under when you've had such success as a writer. Was there any of that pressure? I think the joy of being, uh, of having, as you say, been a writer for 40 years and having done seven novels that were... Uh, up until Museum of Modern Love had very, very small readerships, I didn't feel any pressure at all. I just knew I had to write another one. And this one came in such a, with such force and Astrid came with such force that I didn't actually have any sense that I'd better write a really good novel. Uh, I just thought I'd better write another novel. So the ferociousness of the way Bruni came through just didn't give me any time to have any prima donna moments or any you know existential crises about me mm. as a writer or um, my ability as a writer or any of those things I just had to keep working and the lovely thing too I must say about 
being a writer for so long, having you know literally uh, been paid to be a writer since I was about seventeen, is that it's about the craft. It's about the craft. You know, the story is the story. The characters are the characters. I'm very lucky the way my characters come like a movie in my head. But the job is to sit there every day and work at this thing until it's done. Mm. So, you know, you do that first scramble of notes where you start to think, oh, I think the story looks like this. And then there's a first draft and then there's a second draft and then there's a third draft. And then if you're lucky, at some point in all of that, uh, you know, a publisher might come along. In fact, the publisher didn't come till about the 79th draft with the Museum of Modern Love. But this book, you know, gathered itself together and had a, um, a form very fast compared to my other books. And when I first sent it to my agent, I was really only doing that to say, look, this is where I've got to, what do you think? And it was then that she said, you've written a much more serious novel than you think you've written. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just a satire, Heather. This is really an important book. And uh, I want to send it straight off to Alan and Unwin. And I was like, oh, I I didn't think it was ready Mm. to go. And so this book came, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing, the creative process. Uh, I'm so grateful to be able to be a creative in life. Yeah, and I think I mean I think a lot of writers find it tough to separate maybe their ego from from their craft, but it seems maybe forty years has allowed you to beaten, have that maturity, beaten, <laughs> beaten that out of beaten you, beaten it out of me, <laughs> beaten. I, I can't tell you how many rejection notices I've had. I still get rejection notices. I still, I, I still have um, an incredible difficulty in crafting. You know, it's it's hard work. It's discipline. It's determination. Uh, it's it doesn't come easy. Of course it doesn't come easy. It's it's a ruthless and relentless kind of process writing a novel. It's a marathon. It's a marathon of hours. You know, I'm just, just starting my next one. And I know that it will be years and hours and sunny days and, and days I have to turn down invitations to great things and not see my friends and not talk to people on the phone. You know, there's a, there's a seclusion that's so important as a writer and I know sometimes people say I'm very hard to get hold of, but that's because I have to go into my bunker with my characters until mm. I bring them into the light. Well, you say bunker, but your bunker is in fact a beautiful study with a view of the River Doe. It is. <laughs> it's an incredibly nice bunker. Mm, so you say how hard writing is, but I can't imagine <laughs> that it's that tough. I, I wonder if you could tell our readers because the, the novel, as we've spoken about, is an ode to the environment and in particular the Tasmanian environment and just how unique and majestic it is. So where are you living now and what's that like? Well, the the beautiful thing is that when I grew up on the River Derwent, uh, mm. just above a beach on the River Derwent, and when I left Tasmania, uh, I went to Europe and in fact, for a little while I was living in Switzerland and I was living under the Eiger and it was the most landlocked I'd ever been in my life I think and I remember thinking one day I'm going to live in a house where I can take my kayak across the road to the beach and I held that thought in my head for 30 years and then one day I found my house where I could take my kayak across the road to the beach so I do have the most incredible place to live and write. There's no question about it. I feel lucky every moment of every day to be there. Uh, it's taken a lot of work to get there. It, it, it's taken a lot of um, a lot of energy to 
to make that place mine. Mm. But it is beautiful and the fact that I can walk the beach and, you know, be very solitary, be very reclusive, live in a very, very, very quiet place where, uh, you know, I'm left to my own devices. I'm only 70 centimetres above sea level. Oh <laughs> so, you know. Climate uh, change. Yeah, yes, no, no. yes. But it is beautiful and the light is beautiful mm. and, yeah, I'm incredibly privileged to have that. It's a, a true, true delight. But I'm also the... Uh, the third generation of my family to live in that area and my children are the fourth so there's a really nice sense of continuity living there as well. Um, Well you speak about the area with such love um, and I think maybe the the irony of this book and its inevitable success will be that you may end up accidentally bringing more tourists to Tasmania. (laughs) A few people have mentioned that and even that might, they might have to build a bridge to Bruni oh, to take no. care of them. So that would be no way past not okay. So, uh, yes, it's... Look, Tasmania is a rare jewel in the world and more and more people are discovering it, more and more people are coming to live there. Uh, I think we have to be very careful about what we consider for the future of our island and what values we you know we respect and honor for our island and what what values we think aren't going to serve us into the future so that's a conversation we need to have as a people for Tasmania and with our government as well what a lovely note to end on thank you so much for joining me today thank you Emma it's been delightful (laughs) 